If you have your Bible, be turning tonight to Exodus chapter 20, if you have your Bible. We started a brand new uh, midweek series called 10, the Ten Commandments then and now. And I so appreciate Pastor David's message uh, last week that I felt really laid the foundation and gave us a good biblical perspective of the commandments at large. And now for the next several weeks, we will be going more like zooming in to each commandment and trying to extract as much as we can Out of it. One of the first lessons um, that parents, I think, universally try to teach their children is how to share. Right? Fathers and mothers are continually reminding their sons and daughters to share their space and to share their food and to share their toys. Bless you. As important as it is. To learn how to share, it's also important to realize some things are not meant to be shared. Right? Like a bite-sized candy bar. If you see me with a bite-sized snicker, don't ask for a bite. It's not appropriate. A unicycle is not meant to be shared. A remote control is not meant to be shared. It belongs to the husband. That is the 11th commandment. After 830 at night, we get the remote. Don't ask. An ice cream cone is not meant to be shared. I don't care how romantic you want to get. When I lick an ice cream cone, I will not give you a lick. And then I take a lick. That's weird. I won't do that. On a more serious note, confidential information shouldn't be shared. Like, like if you have a patient or, or a customer, there's just some information you don't share, right? Even more serious, the love between a husband and a wife, that shouldn't be shared. So, so we recognize that some things in life must be exclusive. Now, if some things were never meant to be shared, then it's not surprising to learn that there are things God refuses to share. Now, it's not that God is stingy. He shares a lot. Come on, he shares a lot of love and a lot of mercy and a lot of forgiveness and a lot of grace. And let's all be honest, he shares a lot more than we deserve. But there are some things he will not share. And you know one of those things? He will not share his glory with another God. And that's why he's given us the first commandment in Exodus 20, verse 3. Look at it. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. That is very direct, is it not? It's clear. And it's very, very narrow. It's exclusive. It may cause some, especially newer Christians, to brush back and think, man, is God really like that? Is God that narrow-minded? Is God that jealous, that possessive? I never thought of God like that. Well, I want to speak to that right at the front end of the message. I want you to imagine it this way. This is strictly pretend. Let's imagine that this week you walk into a restaurant and you see me, your pastor, sitting at a table having a candlelit dinner with a woman who's not named Jenny. It's pretend. 
So you come up and you confront me. And you said, who is this woman? What are you doing? And I respond, oh, don't worry about it. I'm on a date with this beautiful lady tonight, but my wife knows that she always comes first. Imagine you walk away angry and disgusted and and you decide someone's got to tell Jenny about this. So you call and break the news. When I come home from my date, what do you think her response is going to be? Well, imagine my wife meets me at the door and says, hey, honey, did you have a nice time on your date? Come give me a big kiss. I don't mind. You you okay over there? I don't mind you seeing other people as, as long as I am most important to you. Get over here, big boy. That wouldn't happen. As soon as I walked in the door from the date, I would fear for my life. If my wife heard about me eating a candlelit dinner with another woman, I would be in trouble. And I should be. Why? Because she loves me. Her refusal, absolute refusal to share my affection doesn't indict her as insecure or possessive. It does the opposite. It proves that she's devoted to me. And loves me. I would worry if she didn't bother at all. And we should think of this first commandment in the same way. It's not about God being possessive or overbearing. It's the exact opposite. He's so in love with us that he will not share us with anything or anybody. With that being said, I want to talk about the meaning of the command. The meaning of the command by understanding a little bit of context for why God gave the command. So, so we got to understand who he's talking to. He's talking to the Israelites. As Pastor Davis taught us last week, they had just come out of Egyptian bondage. That, that was a polytheistic culture. It means they worship many, many gods. They, they tell us that Egyptian worship the gods of fields and rivers and lights and, and darkness and sun and storm and love and war. Well, over the long centuries of their captivity, the Israelites had gradually given into the temptation to worship these strange gods as well. You understand they were in Egypt decade after decade after decade, and they eventually adapted to their culture, polytheistic culture. I want to show that to you. Ezekiel 20, look at the screen. Then said I unto them, cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. They did not every man cast away the abomination of their eyes. Neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I wrought for my name's sake that it shall not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were. And whose side I made myself known to them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. So, so it's clear that, that the Israelites had become polytheists. They were idol worshipers. And that wasn't going to sit well with God because God has only ever been a monotheist, which is the belief that there's only one true God. That's why in the first command that we just read, he undercuts every supposed claim of deity that doesn't come from him. In essence, giving the first command, he says this, I am to be your one and only God. But again, what gives God the right to make this command? Well, he's God. Look look at verse number two 
of Exodus 20. I am the Lord, all caps, Lord, sovereign ruler. I am the divine authority. I am the creator. You are the creation. I have the right to make a demand. I am the Lord. But, but it gets pretty encouraging after that. Because you see that pronoun, I am the Lord. What's the next word? Thy God. I'm your God. This is in the singular. He's personal. Yes, he's powerful. He's sovereign. He's in charge. But he's the God of each and every one of us. It gets even better. Because he has a redemptive relationship with us. It says that he brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He says, I'm the one that before you even asked, I delivered you. I sought you. I pulled you out of that terrible living situation. I redeemed you. And listen, church, he's redeemed us from the bondage of our sin as well. In essence, he says to his people, if you're wanting to know who is God, that he can say this to me. Then here's what God says to his people. In essence, as the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, it's my right to rule over you. But more than that, I am your very own God. We're bound together by my promises, by my covenant to you. I've I've redeemed you and now I claim my right to all your worship and all your service and all your praise. And I will not share you with anybody. So that's some context of why God was giving this command to the Israelites. But I want to dig a little bit deeper. I want you to understand the actual command meaning of the command itself. And I would define it in a couple statements. First, the first commandment is a matter of exclusion, not priority. When God said, thou shalt have no other gods before me, he's not saying that he just wants to be kept in first place as number one priority. You can have other gods, just keep me at the top. No, it's not a matter of priority. He's not saying that he wants to be number one on the most preferred God list in your life. He's demanding exclusive loyalty. Does that make sense? In other words, God desires to be your one and only, not your first of many. That is so important to understand. I'm going to borrow your imagination several times tonight in the message. I want you to imagine that that you're on a racetrack and, and that the different loves of your life are competing in a race to see who wins the first place trophy. Picture in your mind right now, who would be at the starting line of the race? People you love, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your siblings, your best friend, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whoever. Imagine that God is there too. And in fact, you love him so much that you've given him the inside lane. So he has some advantage. You prefer for him to finish in first place. You just want all the others to be able to run as well. Well, the idea of the first commandment isn't that God comes in first place in the race. What God is describing here is more accurately understood by picturing a race for first place in your life. And he's the only one on the track. God isn't just saying, I want to be first place in your life. He's saying this. I don't even want there to be a second place. That's how exclusive He's being. That doesn't mean you can't have things and people in your life that mean a lot to you and that you're passionate about. I hope you're passionate about your marriage. I hope you're passionate about your financial stewardship. I hope you're passionate about using your talents in your career to be productive for your family. I hope you're passionate about your kids succeeding. Hope you're passionate about these things. 
It's not that you can't be passionate about them. It's that your love and loyalty to these things ought to pale in comparison to your love and loyalty to God. It's that these other important things that God has given you, these gifts that he's given you in life, should never be in competition against him as the rightful king of your life. I know you love your career, but it's not your God. I know you love your house, but it's not your God. I know you love how good you are at your hobby, but it's not your God. I know you work hard for your money, but it's not your God. And I mean, you might make it your God, but there's only one God. Only one big G God. When I say it's not your God, I'm saying this. It won't satisfy. It will fall short. Moment after moment after moment. So then, how do we know if that's happening in our life? How do we know if we're breaking this commandment? If there's other things that are competing for the loyalty we should give to God and affection we should give to God. Three questions I'm going to ask you. You ready? These are tests for idolatry. Number one, what do you sacrifice your money for? What do you sacrifice your money for? What does Jesus say in the Gospels when he's talking about money? He says, where your treasure is. Somebody help me finish it. There will your heart be also, right? What you spend your money on often reveals the true desire of your heart and shows who or what you're truly following. See, the reason Jesus talked about money more than any other subject was because it can easily become his chief competition for your loyalty. That's why he said in Matthew 6, no man can serve two masters. Either you'll love the one or you hate the other. You'll be loyal to the one or you'll despise the other. You can't have two masters. And he concluded that thought by saying this, no man can serve God and mammon, God and money. Perhaps the first thing that we ought to do in searching our hearts for idols is we ought to look at our bank account. Because it will reveal the loyalties and passions of our life. I'll say it this way. Your money tells the unedited story of what matters most to you. Your money tells the unedited story of what most matters most to you. If we're all put on the spot and we, we, we need to answer that question, do you think money's your God? We will have an edited story. We will edit it on the spot. And we'll have reasons for why money's not our God. Well, your bank account doesn't edit the story. Right? Your credit card statement doesn't edit the story. Your contributions report at the end of the year doesn't edit the story. Number two. Here's the next question. When you're hurt, where do you go for comfort? Trying to test and see if we have any idols. When, When you're hurt, where do you go for comfort? When you experience pain in life, where do you turn? I'm talking about default, like, like by default. To what or to whom do you go? It's, maybe it's a parent, a good friend that understands you, a coach, a, a youth leader, a spouse, uh, the refrigerator. That's why they call it comfort food. Maybe you bury yourself in work or you go to the gym or you go on a spending spree. All these things have the potential to compete with Jesus for our devotion and affection. Now, now there's certainly nothing wrong with finding comfort in friends and family. You know, that's part of God's design. We're not supposed to do life by ourselves. He says two are better than one. 
You need people in your life. You need to be able to trust people and go to people, be vulnerable with people. But the question is, do these people or these things take the place of Jesus? When life is really hard, do you trust people more than God? Do you lean on people for comfort more than the Holy Spirit? Let me borrow your imagination again. I want you to imagine that a mother visits the school where her kindergarten son attends. I want you to imagine that that mother has felt a little bit threatened because school just recently started and her son loves his new teacher and talks about her constantly. So the mom's going to go check this out. During recess, the mother shows up, stands next to the teacher at the playground and starts discussing her child's progress. Sees in the distance her, her little boy is swinging from the monkey bars and falls hard. And he gets up crying. And he starts running towards his mom and running towards his teacher who are standing together. Now the little boy loves his teacher. He says so. But when he approaches them, to whom do you think he'll look for comfort? He wouldn't even have to stop and think about it. He would run into his mother's arms as much as he loves his kindergarten teacher. If his mom's there, he's going to mom. Do you see what happened? The pain he experienced created an honest moment. Where his true affection was revealed. So when is the last time you experienced some kind of pain or suffering in life? A job was lost. An unexpected relocation. A relationship ended. The test results weren't what you hoped for. The bank account is empty. Your marriage is struggling. When you experienced the pain, where did you turn? Where? When you fell off the monkey bars. Where did you run to? By default. The answer to that reveals your heart's true devotion. Third question. What disappoints or frustrates you the most? See, when we feel overwhelmed with disappointment, it often reveals something that has become too important. It may be something as significant as losing a job or something as insignificant as losing a ball game. When we find those things have the power to determine who we are and what kind of day we have, it may very well be evidence that something is more important than it should be. Now, of course, if if you're a caring person about anything in life, some level of disappointment and frustration can be natural. I mean, just ask a Dallas Cowboy fan. It's every year for them. I've got Dallas Cowboy fans lining up for counsel every year. Pray for me. I'm losing my patience with these people. If you find that you're excessively disappointed or overly frustrated, listen, it's an indication of what might be competing for affection that's supposed to be God's alone. I think this is the last time I'll borrow your imagination. I'm I'm on like this fairy tale pretend world tonight. Imagine a child, again, who's excited that his father's going to take him fishing. As the the day goes on, the fish just aren't biting. The the more time passes, the more frustrated and disappointed disappointed the father becomes. So they just take the tackle box and fishing rods, throw them in the truck, get back in, just go home. Well, on the drive home, the dad's silent. He's clearly upset. He hasn't said a word to his son. Might that be an indication that the most important part of the day for the father wasn't spending time with his boy, but catching fish? 
Do you see how excessive disappointment and, and, and constant frustration can actually reveal what's on the inside? You may need some help answering that question objectively. Thank you, Siri. Ask a close friend. Ask a family member what seems to disappoint you or frustrate you the most. What sets you off? When are you most irritable? If you hear answers like, well, when your favorite team loses. Or when you had a bad day at work. Or when you find out your favorite TV show got deleted. It may reveal that something's out of order. So what does this look like in real life? Chasing after little G gods. Putting other gods before the God, what does this look like? Well, we're going to look to an example of disobeying the command. There, there are many examples in, Bible, in the Bible for idolatry. One of the most tragic is King Solomon. Solomon was a powerful king. He, he was ruling at the height of Israel's influence. He had chariots and horses by the thousands. He crushed his enemies. He's expanded his kingdom. His palace was filled with gold, not with silver. Because during his reign, silver was just too common. Solomon, though, was also wise. In the early days of his reign, God appeared to him and told him to ask for what he desired. First Kings chapter three. The king could ask for anything that he wanted and his request would would, would reveal what God he wanted to serve. So if he served riches, he would ask for wealth. If he served power, he would request death to his enemies. But what did Solomon request? Wisdom. Because he wanted to serve the one true God and he needed wisdom to do it. And God gave him wisdom. If you read Proverbs, you benefit from that wisdom. But it's important to know that when God gave him wisdom, he also gave him a warning. Can you read this with me on the screen? First Kings chapter nine, follow along. But if ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I've set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I've given them, and this house which I've hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight, and Israel should be a proverb and a byword among all people. Solomon, I'll give you wisdom, but don't turn your heart away from me. What did Solomon do? First Kings 11, verse 3. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. That poor guy. And his wives turned away his heart. Let's read what happened. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. Violation of the first commandment. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Now, now here's the record. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build a high place for Shemesh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed under their God, under their gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice. And it commanded him concerning the saying that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, for as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee and will give it to thy servant. Tell me, that's not sad. How could a man so wise be so foolish? But as we look at Solomon's life carefully, we see that his heart moved before he ever bowed down to false gods. 
As we read the scriptural account of his life, we see him slowly, slowly uh, shift his loyalty to power. He, he was building up these horses and these chariots. He shifted his loyalty to wealth. It took him longer to build his own house than to build the temple. He shifted his loyalty to pleasure, amassing wives and concubines. But at the end of his life, he wrote this book called Ecclesiastes. And he says, let me, let me confess to you what this going after these false gods meant to me and what it did to me, this experience, experiment of breaking the first commandment. Let me write about it. And he did. And look at this. This is a strong warning to us. Ecclesiastes 2, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. That sounds like the world today, does it not? The average person, they're going to do what they want to do. Whatever they want, they'll buy. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was the portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Therefore, I hated life. You, you see that? You know how rich this guy was? You know how much sexual pleasure he could enjoy at the snap of a finger? I mean, how much wealth and, and property and land and influence. And he just admitted, I hate my life. Why, Solomon? Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all vanity and vexation of spirit. Yea, I hated all my labor, which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that should be after me. I put all my life into these gods, but then I die and I leave it all behind. Someone else gets it. This is what happens when we break the first commandment. In the end, oh, the Bible, the Bible is so clear. You will experience emptiness and despair. When we break the first command, we will discover that other gods will not satisfy and they cannot save. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, how weak the gods of this world are and weaker yet their worship makes me. What are you chasing after? That's the question of the message. What is the Holy Spirit targeted in your life right now? You don't have to confess that to me, but God sure deserves your honesty. What has all your attention right now? What gets your best energy right now? What makes you most sad right now? Where is all your money going right now? Ask yourself, well, maybe just do this. Ask the Holy Spirit. Would you show me if there are any false gods that I have replaced the true God with in my heart? Would you show me the areas in my life where I have kicked God off the throne of my heart and given him a cushion on the couch? All of this leads me to ask one last question and I'll be done. Who do we turn to when we figure out we're idolaters? The Holy Spirit shows us that area. Who do we replace it 
with, well, there's only one sufficient replacement. And please don't let this be preacher speak. This is so true. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Number four, Christ and the first command. Christ is the only answer to our tendency to search for love and trust in lesser things. We're going to see throughout these studies, the first commandment, like like the others, is transformed by the coming of Christ. Now, I want you to study with me in conclusion. Would you do that real quick? Because this is important to understand. By transformed, I don't mean that God says these commandments don't apply to you anymore. But the way they apply and the way we obey them does change a little bit. We can think of this first commandment in relationship to Christ. I love this. As a tale of two mountains. God came down on Mount Sinai right here in Exodus 20. And here's what he said. Worship me alone. Fast forward millennia later. Years later. He came down on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? And what did he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's amazing that God who said, worship me and listen to my rules, now tells us to listen to his son. So on the other side of the incarnation, the first commandment means giving to Christ the worship he deserves. That we worship God the Father through pursuing God the Son. And worshiping God the Son. I mean, think about what the New Testament calls him. 1 Timothy 2, 5, he's the mediator between God and man. Hebrews 1, 3, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Philippians 2, he's the one before whom everyone will bow in worship and every tongue will confess he is Lord. Jesus himself said, if you've known me, you would have known my Father also. In other words, if you know me, you know God. If you follow me and you love me and worship me, you worship God. When you see me, you've seen God in the flesh. What am I trying to say? Well, the implication is that if you don't know God in Christ, then you don't know God at all. The first commandment can't be obeyed unless we worship the one who alone shows us the true God. It isn't enough to use the word God In your vocabulary tonight. That doesn't mean he is your God. It's not enough to be part of a monotheistic religion. That claims there's only one true God. And there's only one way to heaven. That's not enough. Because the truth is that we're not worshiping the one true God. Unless we are worshiping God and our Father. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Dane Ortland, a modern day theologian that I love. Our staff just read a book called Gentle and Lowly. We just finished it. We're going to read it as a church at some point. It's amazing. He writes this. The Christian life can be boiled down to two steps. Number one, go to Jesus. Number two, see number one. That's it. That's the answer. If you think this is too simple. Like... Pastor, can you tell me a more practical cure to my idolatry? You're missing it. The cure is not a three-step how-to plan. The cure is Jesus Christ. 
The cure is to consume your time and your energy and your life pursuing the Son of God, worshiping the Son of God, talking to the Son of God, singing to the Son of God, regularly looking to Jesus keeps you from running to other things lesser than Jesus. That's the key. It's every day, Christian, it's every day worshiping Jesus. If the only time you encounter God is on Sundays and Wednesdays, chances are you're an idolater. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I want to give you rest. And that is not a weekly invitation. That is not even a daily invitation. That is a step-by-step invitation. Walk with me. Talk with me. Commune with me. I love that hymn, Alone in the Garden. We should sing that sometime. I love that song. Come to the garden alone. A beautiful picture that Jesus gives us of where to go when we're hurting the most. We don't go to Peter, James, and John. We go to the Father. Because the Father, I'm submitted to the Father. I'm following the Father. He's my one and my only. God, give our hearts passion and revive our passion to worship Jesus and Jesus alone. In the handout, answer the following questions. What am I tempted to trust right now more than God? Number two, what seems more desirable to me than God right now? Number three, how can I regularly look to Jesus each day to worship him alone? These are not empty questions. These are questions meant to be answered in our hearts tonight. If we are breaking the first commandment, then the most proper response tonight is repentance. It's the most proper response. God, I'm sorry, but thank you for showing me where I'm. I'm an idolater, so help me. Give me your grace to seek Jesus every day. Make him the center of my life. God, I I have become so, so overly frustrated about earthly things that like Solomon, I'll leave behind. They've become the center of my life. And your son is no longer who I worship on a daily basis. Forgive me. Help me to regularly look to him, to desire him, to run to him, to trust in him. If you agree with the word tonight, say amen.